Let's pray. Father, we ask what we just sang, that you would work in us by your Holy Spirit to teach us, to change us, to bring healing to broken places, to bring hope to weary places, to bring courage where there's fear, and to equip us with all that we need that we might follow you faithfully in all that you call us to. Would you speak to us this morning through your word that we might be changed. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen and amen. You can have a seat. Good morning, River City. Oh, good. You're somewhat awake. Uh, True confession, I slept horribly last night. So uh, just wanted you to know that. Um, you can grab your Bibles and turn to Psalm 24. That was a bit of uh, unscripted sharing. Uh, Psalm 24, today's our last Sunday in the Psalms for the summer. Uh, we started on June 6th this summer in Psalm 12, and we'll close our summer uh, series in the Psalms uh, here today, August 29th in Psalm 24. Um, just as a bit of housekeeping, next Sunday, Labor Day weekend, um, we'll be in Second Timothy for just one week, um, kind of standalone, but we'll get to that next week today, Psalm 24. If you need a Bible, if you don't have one, uh, some of the scripture will be up on the screen, but if you'd like one, I suppose we haven't done this in a while, um, if you'd like one, you want to slip your hand up, and uh, Marty's here, and maybe some of our strike team, if they're available, I'm giving them, like, clues, uh, sorry, we, didn't, we haven't done this in a while, uh, where we've handed out Bibles. And if you need one, you can slip your hand up, and we have a Bible you can read along with us this morning. Um, Psalm 24 serves as a bit of a, a, of a conclusion. It's got a nice little uh, ending for this series of psalms that we've been in over the last number of weeks. These have been kingly or royal psalms. All, all the way back to Psalm 2, and in places like Psalm 18 earlier this summer, we read kingly language. But starting in Psalm 20, we've been in this little short collection, if you will, of, of royal and messianic psalms. Messianic being uh, psalms that are speaking prophetically about God's Messiah to come. Psalms that are talking in part about King David, but that are also pointing forward to a future and better king, King Jesus. And if you've been with us over the last number of weeks, you've, you've heard that as we've unpacked each of these psalms. And as you're, as you're turning to Psalm 24, maybe starting to look at it, let me, let me start with an illustration that might be helpful, okay? Let me ask you, what makes a really good series of books or a really good series maybe of movies? Now, there, there can be many variables that make a series of stories good, but I think that one of the primary things that makes for a good, not just standalone ser- uh, book or story, but a series is that each book or each story can stand on their own, but they each also feed into the larger story arc. Each time you open up another book or another chapter, you're finding a new bit of information or a new character or a new situation that adds depth and mystery or adds questions or answers questions, right? Each can stand alone by itself, but each adds to the larger story. I think that's when they're 
most effective and most uh, the, the best of those kinds of stories, right? You finally reach the end, the final book or the final movie, and you go, oh, yeah, that's what that is, right? That's why they introduced that worthless character in book two, because they needed to have the thing, right? You understand what I'm talking about when you, anyone here read books or watch movies? I'm trying to cover the whole, the whole gamut, right? Right? There's this sense of satisfaction when you get to the end if it's been really well written. And you see little things that have happened along the way and you're like, ah, okay, I get it now. Or that was a really satisfying payoff, finally. Right? Now, now go back with me for a minute. You can turn Psalm 20 through Psalm 24 just on a few pages. Let me just give you a bit of a recap. Psalm 20 was a prayer of the people that God would hear David's prayer, that God would hear the king's prayer, and would answer the king's prayers, that God would bless the efforts of the king as he prepared for battle, because what's good for the king is good for the kingdom. Psalm 21, then, was a song of rejoicing. On the backside of that victory, it was praise to God because God had actually answered. God had answered the prayers of the king. And there was then hope that God was going to be faithful to answer the next need and carry the king and the kingdom all the way through and fulfill all of his promises. Psalm 22 then, we got a picture of the suffering of the king that he would endure And it pointed to Jesus as the one who would ultimately suffer and bear the curse as the king would suffer for his people, for his subjects to redeem them. That he would take the punishment deserved so that we would know his grace. Psalm 23 last week, as Pastor Devin opened, was the reminder that our king is the faithful shepherd, that it's the king who leads us gently And it's the king who feeds us and cares for us and protects us. It's the king who sets the table for us and invites us in and actually serves us. This faithful, gentle servant who is also strong and sure. He is our good king and our good shepherd, which then leads us to Psalm 24. All five of these kind of go together. So as you're going back uh, this, this week, and you're maybe in your Bible reading, let me just encourage you, go back and start at Psalm 20 and just slowly read through these psalms together and kind of see this giant arc play out. And Psalm 24, today, the final psalm in this little series, closes with this shout of declaration, verse 10, the Lord of hosts, He is the King of glory. Now, I just jumped to the end. We're actually going to look at the whole psalm this morning. And if you look just a bit earlier, we'll read the text here in just a moment, but I just want to give you the context. If you look at verse 3 of Psalm 24, the psalmist asks a question, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? That's the tension he's setting up here in this psalm. Because if, if the Lord if the king truly is the Lord's anointed, if, if the Lord really does answer the prayers of the king, if the Lord really does give the king victory, if God has established that king forever, if this king is the one who has suffered in the place of sinners, if no, no sin could remain on this king, no cords of death could hold him, if we are indeed the sheep of this, and this king is indeed our good shepherd, 
If all of this is true, that he is indeed too our our gracious host who welcomes us in, that he blesses us and serves us and welcomes us, then verse 3 of Psalm 24 is a very legitimate question. Because if this is who God is, in light of all he's shown himself to be, who can approach God? Who can stand in his holy place? See, the psalmist here is not asking for volunteers. (laughs) He's asking how is this possible? Who can actually do this? Right? How can we rightly approach, properly worship, and enjoy real fellowship with God? That's the question at the end of this psalm arc of these last four or five chapters, and specifically of our psalm today. Who can, how can we rightly approach, properly worship, and enjoy real, true fellowship with God? We're going to ask this question as we read this text, but I also want us to see this gospel thread in this ark. Because in Psalm 24, we also see that the King of glory who rules over all invites us by His own power and grace to to come near to Him as He comes near to us. The King of glory who rules over all invites us by His own power and grace to come near to Him as He comes near to us. That might, have been, that might be the longest introduction I've ever given. So let's read together Psalm 24. Uh, you can read along. It'll be on the screen. Psalm 24, a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He'll receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. This is God's word for us this morning. Now, now I don't want to get any further ahead of myself in this text, but but I love the way the end of this psalm kind of breaks out in worship. It's like it can't help it. They, They see and hear who this king is, and it just kind of spills out. But I think it's important, because I think that is the proper response when taking in everything that is true about the king of glory. Now, it's possible that this psalm could have been written by David on the occasion of the Ark of the Covenant being returned to Jerusalem. Some scholars think that this could be the language that they used for that kind of celebration. A little background. The Ark of the Covenant was a a large box (laughs) carried by priests on two poles, and inside of it held the law of God that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. And it served in the worship of in, in the, the worship of Israel, it served as like a central uh, uh, figure or object, physical object of corporate worship for 
God's people. That's what the Ark of the Covenant was for. There was a statue of an angel on either side of the lid, and, and between them was referred to as the mercy seat, the, the place where God would come and dwell with Moses as he would go into the tent and meet with God on behalf of the people. And in the many conflicts, particularly with the Philistines, the Ark of the Covenant was taken. And in 2 Samuel chapter 6, you can read more about how David sought to restore the Ark to Jerusalem and all that went on in there. And finally, uh, the, the short version is this, finally the Ark is coming back to Jerusalem. And as it's being brought back into the city, there's, there's uh, trumpets and, and, and shouts of praise. And David, the king himself, in his undergarments, runs out into the street to dance and celebrate undignified before the ark because he is so grateful for what it represents that the presence of the Lord is again with his people. So, so this is that kind of celebration. That's kind of what it should, it should sound like. Now, we're not sure that this, was, uh, this psalm was written for that purpose, but you get the picture, right? It's a big deal. It's a shout of celebration. But it's clear that the content of Psalm 24 is focused on worship. Each of these sections that we've been given are, are kind of fuel for the fire. It's fuel for our worship. Psalm 24 highlights these realities. And so the question that David asks at the end of the psalm, who is this king of glory, is, should give us some direction as we study this morning. So let's, let's do that. Who is this king that we've been talking about for the past five chapters in the book of Psalms? He's the king of glory. And here's three kind of logs for the fire, if you will, for our worship. Number one, that the king of glory rules over all. Number two, the king of glory invites us to come near him. And number three, the king of glory comes near to us. This is how I think Psalm 24 is kind of organized for us today. So again, our question, how can we rightly approach and properly worship and enjoy real fellowship with God? How can we actually have this kind of relationship with him? It's the king of glory who rules over all invites us by his power and his grace, to come near to him as he comes near to us. So let's look at verses 1 and 2 as we begin. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell within, for he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. The, the big idea here is that the king of glory rules over all. This might seem like an odd way to start a psalm. But Jewish tradition tells us that this psalm was used in the, in the regular liturgy and practice of corporate worship on the first day of the week. The Sabbath would happen as a day of rest and worship. And then the next day, as the week would begin again, this psalm would be sung. This was the anthem to begin the rest of the week. So in our personal liturgy, this is the first thing we sing on Monday morning, if we were using it in that in that way, right? Monday morning of all mornings, we wake up ready for the day and ready for the week, right? No, we wake up and we go, it's Monday. But, the, but what's, what's kind of given to us here is on Monday morning, 
the first things out of our lips are this. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it and all who dwell in it. For he's founded it. It's his. It's a different way to start your week, I think. David writes this. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. David's starting to fill in the answer to the question that's going to be asked later. Who is this king? Well, he's the one who created everything. He's the creator king. And this king rules over all because he created it all. Now, as an aside, this isn't intended or designed to be a scientifically precise creation account. Okay, I don't believe David believes here that the land masses of the earth float upon some underground system of rivers. It's poetic language that David's using here and paints a picture of God's sovereign rule over all things. And here's why I say that. That God has ordered the world that he's created. That's what David's getting at. Seas and waves are dangerous. And in many ancient cultures, including the, uh, amongst the Hebrews, references to water are often full of meaning of chaos and hostility. And so part of what David might be saying is that the Lord, Yahweh, to him, none of this is chaotic to him. He founded it. So not one part is out of his good and sovereign control because he made it all. The writer of Hebrews says this, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So David, here in Psalm 24, is pointing forward to Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he is saying the King, this King of glory, creation is his because he made it all. To quote Abraham Kuyper, who was a Dutch theologian and actually served as Prime Minister of the Netherlands uh, from 1900 to 1904, I think, Kuyper said this, it's a relatively famous quote of his in an inaugural address to the Free University in Amsterdam in 1880. Here's what Kuyper said. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Not one square inch in all of everything we could think of where Christ does not look at it and say, that belongs to me. So for you and me, where is our worship hindered by a low view of God? Where have we forgotten? Or where has our view of Him been obscured by other things that seem big and dominant but don't really truly compare to the majesty and glory of God? Psalm 24 sets the stage for worship and for fellowship by rightly framing who God is as He has revealed Himself to be. This King of glory is indeed Lord of all creation. He carved out the seas. He piled up the mountains. And He reigns as sovereign and supreme over every star in the cosmos and every atom in existence. The King of glory rules over all. 
David continues, verses 3 through 6. He asks this question now. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in His holy place? Our first point is that the King of glory rules over all. Our second point is this, that the King of glory invites us to come near to Him. Now you might say, I don't hear invitation. I think that implied in verses 3 through 6 is a desire to go up the hill, to be near to the Lord. And yet based on what we just were reminded of, I think it's fair to also say, man, that that hill seems steep. <laughs> that, that presence might be just a little too holy for me. I do believe this is an invitation. We are invited to come up the hill. We are invited into the holy presence of God. And the invitation is open to all those whose hands are clean and hearts are pure. Come all those whose soul isn't bowed down to idols and all those who have no lies in their mouths. Sounds great, right? See, we would love to have this kind of fellowship with God and to receive His blessings and His righteousness that we see in verse 5. But I don't know about you, but my hands aren't always clean. My heart is not always pure. I have lifted up my soul to falsehood. My mouth has spoken things that are untrue. So while going up the hill and into God's presence sounds amazing, if that's the requirement, I don't measure up. And I'm probably not alone in that. Just guessing. Right? And this... This is where we see this gospel arc really come into view. See, it's true that because of our sin, both by nature and choice, we will fail to merit, we will fail to earn this position, this privilege on our own. We just will. But listen to what the Apostle Peter says about Jesus. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter is encouraging the church who is under immense persecution from outside forces who are persecuting them for believing in Jesus. Peter says this as they're enduring suffering. He says, Jesus, he, Jesus, committed no sin. And neither, Peter says, was deceit found in his mouth. Sounds a little bit like Psalm 24, doesn't it? Sounds a little bit like the requirements to ascend the hill and enter into God's presence. Here's what Peter's getting at. Jesus' hands are clean. Jesus' heart is pure. He never once lifted his soul to something false. Never once did something false come from his mouth. And the Apostle Paul echoes this in 2 Corinthians. He says, For our sake, he, God the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin. That is, the sinless one took on sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Psalm 24, verse 5, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Did you catch that? The blessing and the righteousness comes from God, who is the Savior, to the recipient. Hear the gospel today for the first time or the hundredth time. Jesus Christ took your sin and my sin to the cross, and in exchange, we get His righteousness. And we receive this 
as a gift by faith. Such is the generation, he continues in verse 6, such is the generation of those who seek him, of those who seek God like this. He says, like Jacob sought God. Now, here's another little Old Testament aside. There is a beautiful gospel irony in the life of Jacob. Genesis 32 tells the story of Jacob, whose life to that point was filled with deceit, lying, and disappointment. And yet the Lord had chosen Jacob. And in Genesis 32, we read that Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord all night. This is often understood uh, by scholars to be a theophany, where God uh, is entering into history in, in a physical way when you read the angel of the Lord. That is often what scholars will reference. We don't have time to get into that tonight. But, it, but, but he wrestled all night, Genesis 32 says, all night. And he said, I will not let you go until you bless me. So we take hold of Christ who has taken hold of us and we by faith and by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us take hold of that which has taken hold of us. Christ who is the pure one, who is the righteous one, who has not sworn falsely, who is merited, is worth Ascending the hill and being in God's presence says, I'm going to take what makes you unworthy. I'm going to give you my worthiness. Because in Christ, then, our hands are clean. In Christ, our hearts are made pure. We have received both Christ's blessing and his righteousness. How can we rightly approach the King of glory who created all things and is perfectly holy? The King of glory invites us to come near to Him and by His own power and grace makes us righteous. That's how. The King of glory rules over all. One, two, the King of glory invites us to come near to Him. And finally, verses 7 through 10, the King of glory comes near to us to rule and reign. This is the call to worship part of this psalm that I mentioned when we first started The picture of gates and doors is meant to evoke images of a a great city. If you can imagine, uh, uh, like the Ark of the Covenant being marched into Jerusalem, right? Or, Or the conquering king is returning from victory in battle. Can you picture it? Have you seen the movie Aladdin? Right? Make way for Prince Ali. It's like my favorite song, both in the uh, animated and live action. They're both good, by the way. I shouldn't endorse that. <laughs> right? The, you can picture it, right? There, there's, there's heralds out in front of the king saying, he's coming. The king is on his way. And the people in the city are like, what's happening? What's happening? And, and people are getting excited and they got to open the doors and everyone's shouting. And this isn't only an invitation to come and be with the king. Right? It's not an invitation like, hey, come up here to where I'm at. What's beautiful about this picture is the king is coming to his people. He's coming to be with you. He is gracing you with his presence. That's the picture 
here. Consider how this might sound as a, as a sort of corporate call and response, right? The, the worship leaders, the heralds are calling out from in front of the entourage, lift up your heads, O gates, be lifted up, you ancient doors, the king of glory is coming. And then the voice from inside the city, who is this king of glory? Who is this one? I, I don't know this guy. And then the, the, the king's herald or a spokesman would respond to the, to the cries of who is this with, well, he's the Lord, strong and mighty. He's the victorious Lord, mighty in battle. And then the worship leaders would, again, lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Be ready to receive him. And then the voice again from inside the walls, who is this king? And then altogether, everyone would declare as they see him come into view, the Lord of hosts, that is the Lord Almighty, Jehovah Sabaoth, that is the Lord God of hosts of armies. He's the King of glory. Can you see this call and response, this movement of worship of the people? This entrance of the King into the city has a similar feel, although slightly different from the scripture that Marty read earlier from Matthew 21. See, Jesus on his way into Jerusalem, he doesn't come on a chariot but on a borrowed donkey. He didn't come with heralds calling to the city to open her gates. In fact, the city, most of the city asked, who is this? But he entered to crowds of those who had heard his message. People who had heard about the kingdom, people who had experienced healing by his own hand, they welcomed him with their clo- cloaks and with branches. He entered Jerusalem not to shouts of victory, but to shouts of Hosanna, save us. See, Psalm 24 speaks to the arrival of the victorious king of glory, which is speaking prophetically about Jesus. Arriving in Jerusalem and looking to the cross where in a few short days he would hang on a tree in victory over sin. And three days later, he would rise from the dead in victory over death itself. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts, the Lord of victory, who has defeated all of our enemies and has come to us to be our king, and we will be his people. Does this fuel our worship? See, our King Jesus is both the fulfillment of the law and our example to, to, to follow him in pursuit of lives of, of holiness and righteousness, although he's not merely a good moral teacher. Our King Jesus is the truest and most faithful, self-sacrificial Savior. He looks with compassion on the harassed and the helpless. Although he's not only meek, he is also strong. And our King Jesus will return just as he ascended. Matthew 21 is a beautiful picture of the the king entering the city. And it's a beautiful picture also of the already and not yet. The apostle John was given a vision of this not yet future entrance of King Jesus. Revelation chapter 19. Just, Just listen to this in light of Psalm 24. And the heralds declaring the the entrance of the victorious king. Just listen to this from Revelation chapter 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. 
and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, many crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Like a well-told story, each of these parts of Psalm 24 are these beautiful pictures into the nature and character of God revealed to us. He is our creator and sustainer. He is the one who calls us and makes possible our invitation by making righteous those who are not righteous on their own. And he's the one who comes to us. He doesn't wait for us to find him. But he goes out and conquers all our enemies and secures for us an eternal, lasting victory and will carry us all the way to the end. And so when we read this, we see the the gospel arc complete. So as we close this morning, we recall the question that was asked at the beginning. If the king of glory is who he says he is, how then can we rightly approach and properly worship and enjoy real fellowship with God? This is possible through our King Jesus. King Jesus rules over all. King Jesus invites us and by his own power has made us worthy to ascend the hill, to be in his presence. And King Jesus has come near to us, both in his incarnation, coming to be with us, his life, death, and resurrection, and has promised that he will come again to finish what he started. May our hearts overflow with joy and worship that would spill out from our mouths together in praise for our great Would you pray with me? Father, we confess you are indeed creator and sustainer. That you uphold all things by the word of your power, King Jesus. And that you Holy Spirit, are at work applying the finished work of Christ to your people, making us holy so that we might approach you and worship you rightly and be with you. We believe, help our unbelief. Cause our hearts to to overflow with joy to swell with gratitude and that worship would spill out of our mouths as we see you afresh for who you are and respond in praise for what you've done. We pray all this in Jesus' name, our great King. Amen and amen.